you have a Bible, you can open it up to James chapter 4. Um, working our way through James here, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. It's part of that larger section we talked about last week um, that started at the beginning of chapter 3, how careless words lead to sinful division and dispute in the community of believers. Um, today's passage, James is going is to focus on the fighting among believers, among the church, among brothers and sisters in Christ. And last week I mentioned how thankful I am for the unity that, that, uh, that is, is apparent here among us as, uh, as a young church plant, especially as we navigate through, um, through all of the different issues that are going on outside of, the, of, our, of our church community right now, but filter their, their way into it, okay? And, uh, and so um, I want to make sure, though, I want to emphasize the fact this morning that what James is going to talk about, about division among the church, that we need to keep our ears perked up for this. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the, of the, the spirit through the bond of peace. That means that, that um, we have to actually work to stay unified, right? And we're going to learn why, because James is going is to walk us through um, one of those things, or, or some of those, th those reasons that, that unity uh, is difficult to maintain. You see, um, we need to pay attention today because uh, even though we, we are unified right now, and, and even though it seems like people are working to maintain unity, there's not one single person among us, including myself, who's not just a few sinful choices away from bringing division and disunity into the church and creating that division. And so I want to read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. I want to pray. And then I want, uh, I want to hear and gain wisdom together from God's word this morning. So here it is, James chapter 4. Verses 1 through 12. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, we need your help this morning. 
so that we uh, can humble ourselves before you, so that we can humbly receive the implanted word as it's proclaimed, that we can uh, that we can know you better, that we can understand ourselves better, and uh, Lord, as followers of Jesus who are being renewed uh, in his image and who still uh, have sin in our hearts, that we need to be reminded of uh, the dependency upon Christ that's necessary for us to live in obedience to you. And so I pray this morning that we would see Jesus through this passage, that this wouldn't just be a do better and work harder thing, but it would be uh, that would grow in us a desire to obey because of the freedom that we've been given to do so in Christ, that we've been given the spirit who dwells in us, God's Holy Spirit that works together, leading us into all truth, helping us love the Son and the Father more than we ever could because without him, we are enemies who hate you. Lord, would you help that sink in this morning? Would you give us wisdom that we so desperately need? Help us to receive it in faith and not doubt so that we're not tossed back and forth by the waves of uncertainty and division in the world. And Lord, we pray that you would unify your church not just through a message today, but continually here as we grow together uh, for the same purpose of bringing glory to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, in chapter three, last week, um, James talked about the tongue, talked about it being this uh, small thing with great power um, that, that, that wields, uh, has the ability to wield, to wield uh, great evil. He told his, the, the readers to consider how a small fire sets ablaze a, a, uh, a large forest. He talked about how the tongue is a, is a fire, right, that, that uh, sets the course of life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. I spent 12 years on the volunteer fire department in Goodfield before we moved here. And one thing that we were always taught, one thing we always looked for is the point of origin of a fire, okay? Uh, when you go through, the, now the main thing, you're not going in with the house on fire and trying to figure out where it starts, right? You got to put it out. But afterwards, when you go through, you're looking for the source of the fire. You're looking for the point of origin, the main cause of destruction and damage. What's one of the reasons that we would do that? Well, it's, it's actually for future fire prevention so that we can determine what actually happened, why it happened, and, and see what we need to do to to put safety measures in place so that that doesn't happen again. Conflict in the church is like, it's like a fire that spreads rapidly and causes a great amount of damage and destruction quickly if it's not put out quickly. So what starts as a small disagreement can turn into this full-fledged war where people are picking sides and lobbing verbal artillery across uh, the, the, the battle lines at each other from the safety of their own base camp aka social media. Conflict is happening in the churches that James is writing to, right? We're aware of this by now. He's going to point them to the source of the fire today, the, the, the point of origin. He's going to show them and tell them what they need to do then to put the fire out. But he's going to help us today with fire prevention. 
We're going to get wisdom from God's word today on why we fight with one another in God's church and what we need to do to prevent that from happening in the first place. When the, when the sparks of, of conflicts fly and the heat of division starts to spread in the church, we're quick to look for outward reasons, right? We're quick to, to look for outward sources. We want to put the match, so to speak, in someone else's hand. When, when wars and fights break out among the people of God, we want to, to, to point fingers at someone else as firing the first shot. But James is going to show us that it's our inward wars that cause our outward wars. And our inward wars come from a double-minded heart. This is a major theme that we've seen over and over and over again in his letter. And this double-minded heart causes us to fight against our allies and ally with our enemies. It flips what we should be doing. And so if we want to prevent war and cultivate peace, then we must. That's the key word. We must. We have to. It's non-negotiable. We must humbly confess our double-mindedness and wholeheartedly submit ourselves to God. At the end of chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, James says this to the church. You may remember this from last week. He says, For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of unrighteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. He's clearly distinguishing between disorder and peace as a matter of earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And then he offers up this rhetorical question here in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Now, how do you think his readers, who've been hearing all that we've heard so far in this letter, how do you think they're going to answer that question in their heads? Surely some of them are thinking of, of some names of other people, right? Some of them might know that what he's, what he's getting at based on what he said earlier in the letter. They might be picking up on that. They get to answer, the, or they get to the answer, though, in this second rhetorical question, at verse 1 says, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Now he's forcing them to deal with their own inner division, their own double-mindedness of their heart, and, and it's caused by their own desires and passions. The, the Apostle Paul understood this really well, right? The, the internal battles in Galatians, his letter to Galatians, he says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. In Romans 8, Romans 7, he talks about uh, the, the same kind of thing in, in Galatians 5 there, this internal battle. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Romans 8, he says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God, Paul says, because it does not submit to God's law. We've heard this before. 
James is talking about the same thing. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so what evidence then does James give here of fleshly desires? We need to look at verses two and three. He says, you desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James says that they desire what they don't have. You ever been there? They crave it. They, they lust after it. It consumes their, their thoughts and their, their mind and their heart. But they can't get it. And so they covet and they murder and they fight and they divide over it. Now, murder is probably a hyperbole here. James, James probably isn't. If they were actually murdering each other, he probably would have addressed that more specifically in the letter, right? But what's he getting at here? You murder. Remember, his, his letter um, echoes the teachings of Jesus. And we remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've killed them. You may as, well, may as well have killed them. It is the same thing. This murder is, he, James is emphasizing the extreme behavior of unbridled passion and selfishness. Like the tongue, if it's not bridled, spews hatred. Hurtful words toward one another. Murderous words. James is talking about having bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart that leads to disorder and every evil practice. He said that in verse 16 of chapter 3. He's reminding them that each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by what? His own evil desire. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. He told them that in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And then he tells them the reason why they don't have what they want. They either don't ask God for it, or they do ask God, but they ask with the wrong motives so that they can spend it on their, on their pleasures. They either don't pray at all, or they pray it with the wrong goal in mind. And we're guilty of the same things, aren't we? When we forget or doubt that God supplies every good and perfect gift, everything that we need, when we forget or we doubt that, we stop asking him for what we lack. We stop coming to him. We need to hear this. Prayerlessness is a warning sign that you're either forgetting or you're doubting, disbelieving that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. James tells us in chapter 1. But you also, you can pray a lot, right? And still not get what you want because it's not what God wants. Anything you desire, any pleasure that you have that ultimately finds its end in anything other than God and his glory is less than God desires. And so you are not aligning your desires with his. Pleasure in prayer that does not have God's glory as its chief end will end up unfulfilled and unanswered. So what's the purpose of prayer then? How do we make sure that we're we're actually praying with the right motives, right? Because we can't not pray at all. James tells us that that's wrong. We have to pray, but like now it kind of, you kind of get a little nervous, right? Like, well, I want to make sure I'm doing it right. We don't pray to get what we want from God. 
We pray to learn what God wants so that we can begin to want that too. And we, that means that we need to pray according to his will. How do we know what his will is? He's told us in his word. So we pray according to the word of God who tells us who the person of God is and communicates God's desires for us and for himself. And so prayer helps us then focus on who God is and it shapes our desires to match what he desires. Prayer is really for our transformation in submitting ourselves to the Lord and his will. What is the source of wars and fightings among, of, and fights among you? James says, it's your passions, your pleasures, your desire, your wrong motives. You, 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 you. You should go back through those, those first few verses and, and just underline how many times James says the word you there. Our inward wars are the source of our outward wars, and our double-mindedness turns our brothers and sisters in Christ— people for whom Jesus has died into our adversaries. It also makes God our enemy and the world our friend. Look at verse four. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. Now, the last time James addressed his readers directly, what did he call them? What's he been calling them this whole time? Brothers and sisters, right? There's a major shift here in verse four. You adulterous people. I don't know how often you throw that out at a family gathering, but probably not so much. It's strong language, right? It's, it's reflective of his disdain for double-mindedness and the serious danger of sinful desires. You adulterous people, it's Old Testament in imagery of Israel as God's unfaithful bride. Remember, he's writing this to Jewish Christians. They're familiar with Israel's history because it's their history. So they would immediately recall Israel's history of spiritual adultery against God when they read or hear those words from James. There's no doubt that they understood in this moment the indictment uh, from James that they too were committing spiritual adultery against God by chasing after their own passions and desires. And then he asks them another rhetorical question. We're going to see this pattern in these verses today. And they already know the answer. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now, what does he mean by friendship here? Right? We need to understand what that is. It's a uniting of oneself to another in brotherly love. It's forming this bond of friendship, unity, bond with one another. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions— a.k.a. evil desires and selfish ambition. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. When we're friends with the world, the world's desires become our desires. When we, we crave what the world craves, we lust after what the, the world lusts after. We love what the world loves. We love the world, and the world loves us. But you might ask, like, 
well, shouldn't I love the world? Aren't I supposed to, you know, to, to be all things to all people, right? What about John 3, 16? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's a different kind of love. That's a sacrificial love for enemies who hated him. God sent Christ to die for his enemies so that we could be reconciled to him. He could reconcile us to himself in love. But then that also required that he give us a new heart. So listen, that we would begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And that requires then us to hate what we used to love and love what we used to hate. This is how faith and repentance works in our lives. We see God's love for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, for us. We look at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and we compare that to what the world has to offer, and we see there's no greater love to be found than in someone who lays down his life for a friend, right? But this is what's so shocking about what Christ did for us. We weren't his friends. It's rare that someone will give his life for someone else. When that does happen, it's usually for someone who's upright and good. Paul talks about this in, in Romans chapter 5. It's usually for a friend, right? But what does Paul say? He says, but God proves his love for us, his own love, not the world's love, his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still helpless and ungodly, while we were enemies, not friends of God. Enemies who hated him. Jesus Christ willingly died for us. God offers himself in love to us through his son. And now the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, where he sits interceding on our behalf, and the, the descension, the coming down and, and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God has given us grace upon grace upon grace, gift upon gift upon gift. What does the world have that compares to that? The world doesn't even love itself right now. We become convinced of all of this through faith in Christ. And we're compelled by his love and by the Spirit who now lives in us to follow his commands and continue in a life of repentance, of confessing our own sinful desires and turning away from them and from the things of the world so that we are in the world, but not of the world. Our friendship is with God. Our friendship is not with the world. We're united to Christ through faith. And that bond is sealed by his Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And when we're sealed, that can't be undone. In chapter 2, James called Abraham God's friend through faith. Remember that? Here he's warning his readers against friendship with the world that comes from believing that the world can give us what God can. A bond with the world, friendship with the world, will ultimately leave them in bondage to sin and remaining enemies of God. But friendship with God, this is where freedom is found. Freedom from sin and the adulterous things of the world. Now there's a bit of uncertainty among biblical scholars on how 
Verse five should be translated from the original language, which was Greek, right? And, and so you probably have a footnote in your Bible with a, a couple alternate versions of that verse. Here, here's, here's the thing though. Um, James isn't directly quoting an Old Testament passage there. You won't find a, a, a cross-reference for it. But the main idea is this, is, is God's righteous jealousy for his people's undivided affection. Exodus 34, 14 says, because the Lord is jealous for his reputation, you are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. We don't use the term jealous and think of it as holy and righteous and good. But when we place it as a description of who God is, it has to be. The translators differ on whether James is, is referring to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who dwells in us, whether that's the, the Holy Spirit that God's given us, or our spirit, our human spirit that God has given every person that brings life to their bodies. Either way, though, the main focus here is on the desire of God that the entirety of our inward being be completely and wholeheartedly devoted to him. So how does he ensure that? Verse 6 but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives greater grace, but to whom? James points his readers to Proverbs 3.34 here for the answer. He's quoting that. He says, God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to who? The humble. What does he do to the proud? He resists them. He opposes them. He, he sends judgment upon them. And this reinforces what James has said in verse 4. The proud person, what? Is hostile to God and makes God his enemy. So now, what are we to do if we are proud? Well, James gives us the answer. We seek God's grace by humbling ourselves and submitting to him. Look at verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James says if you oppose God, God will oppose you, and you will not win that battle. Therefore, submit. Submit to him. Align your passions, your pleasures, your desires with his. Surrender yourself to the care of the one who cares. If you resist God, God will resist you. But if you resist the devil, the devil will what? Flee from you. Because God will give you the grace. He gives greater grace. He will give you the grace that you need to stand firm. Which battle would you rather fight? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James offers this as a promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is also a promise, and it gives hope to every believer when we hold on to that truth. When you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, that mighty hand not only extends mercy and grace to you, but it lifts you up out of your despair and sends your true enemy packing. Send your true enemy fleeing in retreat. 
So humble yourselves. What, what does that look like? What does the act of humbling ourselves look like? James answers that in verses 8 and 9. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's the thing. We need to take God seriously, and we need to take our sin seriously. This is what James is getting at here. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Verse 8 draws again on Old Testament imagery of approaching the temple in worship. His Jewish audience would, 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 would see this in their minds. To worship the Lord in his presence, it required ceremonial washing. It required sacrifices for their sin so that they could come with what Psalm 24 says is clean hands and a pure heart. Listen to it. Psalm 24, 3 and 5. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, the, from the God of his salvation. Clean hands and a pure heart is the same thing as holiness in deed and thought. They were ceremonial acts in the temple. They're symbolic. But the deeds and actions, the desire and the doing of of, of your mind and heart, clean hands and a pure heart. So how should James readers think about what he's telling them to do here? Remember, they're not just Jews, they're Christians. This is after Jesus has come and, 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 and finished the work on the cross and, and rose from the grave and ascended back to the Father. They've been given a new and permanent way to draw near to God through Christ himself. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. James's readers have no more temple to go to. They are the temple. Because of Christ's indwelling presence through his spirit, they have Christ himself, and so do we. We draw near to God through Jesus. We live in an ongoing a lifestyle of confession and repentance in full assurance that Christ himself has made us clean permanently once and for all. We take God and his promises seriously, but in order to do that, that means that we also have to take our sin seriously. James doesn't call them brothers and sisters here, right? So far he's called them adulterous people. And then what else does he call them? Wash your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's emphasizing the seriousness of their worldliness and the division that that is causing in the church. He tells them in verse 9 to be miserable, to mourn, to weep, to turn laughter into mourning and, and joy into gloom. In other words, repent. Be serious about how sorry you are. 
Be sincere about it. Don't pretend and put on a show. Don't ignore it like it never happened. Be sorry for your sin and turn away from it. The sin of division in the church should grieve us. It should grieve us because it's a betrayal and a rebellion against the God who loves us and who gave himself for us. And it's a rejection of the holiness that he has purchased on our behalf through Christ and the unity that he calls us to maintain. If you stir up division in the church and you're not deeply grieved over it, this is a warning sign that you love your sin and yourself more than you love God and the people he's purchased with his own blood. It's a warning sign that you're resisting God and not the devil. It's spiritual adultery. It's self-exaltation. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is our fire prevention. This is what we need to do to keep a division from flaming up in our church. Humility before God will keep us humble before others, and it will help us resist the temptations of the world and the devil that prey on the passions that we wage that wage war. Got talking too fast there. That that wage war within us. We have three enemies, right? The Bible's clear on that. The world, the devil, but maybe the, the most threatening one is ourselves. Jesus has to rescue us from us. Not just from the world, not just from our adversary, the devil. Humility before God leads to unity with his people. And then James brings it all back around in verses 11 and 12 by discussing the issue of controlling the tongue. Verse 11, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now notice what James calls them again in verse 11. It's not adulterous people. It's not sinners. It's not double-minded. It's brothers and sisters. He's called them some, some harsh things, some pointed names, but now he's reaffirming his view of them as he instructs them not to criticize one another. It, it, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't being critical of them in these earlier verses by calling them these names. He was being truthful. He sees them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, 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 by now, we should know that based on how many times he's called them that throughout this letter. But he sees the adulterous behavior, the sinful behavior, the double-mindedness that is uh, what sinners do. That they're acting, acting like adulterous, double-minded sinners. And so he's firm in his rebuke but he's loving in his reassurance of his relationship with them and his desire to maintain unity. So, so what does it mean then to criticize one another? Well, he tells us that in verse 11. He's, he's talking about defaming. 
and, and judging a fellow believer, to slander or, or to condemn a brother or sister in Christ. Anyone who defames and judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law, he says. What's the law he's talking about? He told us in chapter 2. Love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law of love. Anyone who criticizes a fellow believer ignores the royal law and thinks himself superior to it rather than submissive to it. James says you're not a doer of the law. We heard that before, right? You're a judge of it. You're not obedient to it. You're critical of it. And then he reminds readers in verse 12 that there's only one lawgiver. So there is only one judge. And he alone is able to save and destroy. This is another rhetorical statement, right? He doesn't come out right away and say who it is, but they know. They know who he's talking about, and so do we. God alone is the judge, because God alone is the lawgiver. If you criticize your neighbor, you criticize the law. If you criticize the law, you criticize the one who gave it. If you place yourself over your brother or sister in the Lord, you are placing yourself over the law, and you are placing yourself over the one who gave it. Over God himself. And so he, James concludes with one final rhetorical question. But who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you compared to God? If we take that question seriously and we answer it honestly, we're already moving in the direction of humility. Humility that we all desperately need and must cling to. So what does then this look like practically for us as a young church uh, striving for unity in the midst of a number of current issues causing division in our world? We need to understand the difference between culture and the church and divide ourselves from the right thing or things. We need to remember that we have been purchased. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are no longer citizens of the world. We are citizens of heaven and the kingdom of God. We're exiles here. We need to live as exiles. That means we'll experience hatred from the world. We should expect it. Jesus said it in John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. If the culture around you agrees more with you than the church does, it ought to drive you humbly to your knees in prayer with the word of God open desperately asking the Lord for wisdom to understand whether you've given your heart over to friendship with the world or someone else in the church has. If there's disagreement there, it's probably one or the other. But you need to seek that wisdom for the purpose of unity, 
not to gather arsenal. Knowing that whether you're guilty of division or someone else's, your goal is to cultivate peace with one another. We have this, this, this cancel culture that's just pervasive, especially in America right now. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's somebody says something, somebody does something, it's offensive to someone else or objectionable maybe, and, and, and then that person gets shamed. They get boycotted on social media and everywhere else. They get fired from their job. They get kicked off the team. They get shunned from the family. They're canceled. They're shunned. They're, they're ruined. We're done with them. No mercy. No grace. All in the name of justice. We need to hear this. Cancel culture is pervasive in America, but it can never be pervasive in the church. Why? Because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are compelled in love for one another, to plead with one another, to be reconciled to God. Second Corinthians 5. We've been reconciled, and we call others to the same thing. Even when the church carries out church discipline, which I know some of you in here, maybe watching, have experienced that in a, in a really worldly way and have a bad taste in your mouth from it, but it's a biblical thing. It's only biblical, though, when the goal is not to shun someone, but to restore a person's broken relationship with God and with the church but we can't carry out church discipline faithfully if we don't have meaningful membership. We need to understand what that is. And so I'm working on a, on a membership class. Now, it's not something to, to put, you know, well, I, I mean, maybe everybody's looking for something to actually schedule on your calendar right now um, because it's been a while to, to do something like that. But, but it's, not just, it's not just something else to do or something else to, to, to learn. It's designed to help us gain wisdom. It's designed to help us have a clear understanding of what membership is because it's far more than just choosing where you go to church every Sunday. It consists of brothers and sisters in the Lord, regenerate people whose hearts have been made new and been given new life in Christ, hearers and doers of the word, united to Christ and to each other through the Holy Spirit who give ongoing, observable James says, show me your works. Ongoing, observable evidence to their shared profession of faith. By design, by biblical, God-ordained design, church membership is going to drive us to be more and more intrusive in each other's lives. Are you ready for it? It doesn't get to be just you and God. That's not how it works. You're part of a body. And the closer we get to one another, the more we're going to find areas of disagreement. And we're going to need to put this wisdom from James into practice. We need to have this posture of humility toward God all the time. So that we have a posture of humility toward each other. We need a, an acute awareness of our enemies to our souls and what they're up to. We need this awareness of our own sinful desires, uh, the temptations of the world, the, the lies and deceit of the devil. We need to make every effort 
to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace because what? The fruit of righteousness is sown in righteousness, in peace, excuse me, by those who cultivate peace. If you're eager to defend sound doctrine, you've got to be sure that one of the doctrines that you are eager to defend and uphold is the unity of the church. You can't make a defense for the gospel while simultaneously denying it in your lack of love for a fellow believer. Unity in the church, it's, it's really hard to maintain, especially the more people you invite in. But it's hard because we sometimes we, we still love ourselves and we love our sin more than we love God and others. We are the source of the fighting among us. It's our inward wars that cause our outward wars. And our inward wars come from a double-minded heart. And a double-minded heart causes us to fight against our allies and ally with our enemies. So if we want to prevent war, if we want to prevent the, the, the fire of division and cultivate peace, then James is clear. God is clear. We must humble ourselves, confess our double-mindedness, and wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, submit ourselves to God for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we, we ask for help. We want to be uni unified. We want to be united. We want Christ to be glorified through this church. We want to be people of the gospel. We want to be people of humility, of love, who are quick to forgive, slow to anger. Lord, help us to learn how to have conversations that are uncomfortable. Help us learn how to approach each other in humility and in love, but in truth and grace. Lord, would you give us a ongoing awareness of the planks that are in our own eye, even as you call us to help our brother and sister with the splinter in theirs. And would you help us to walk humbly and slowly with one another? knowing that it's Christ who has promised to complete in us what you began, the good work of redemption. Help us to see one another as people for whom Christ has died until they no longer give example of that. And when that happens, Lord, help us to move closer in love with the gospel pleading and begging for reconciliation with God and with each other. Keep us humble, Lord. We know that we will mess up. So help us be quick to seek forgiveness. Unite your church for your glory and our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.